Today, we're looking at the story of one of the most evil people in the Bible. That person is Haman, and he's the main villain of the story of Esther. Haman was a powerful man in the Persian Empire who tried to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. And in this episode of the Following Jesus podcast, we're going to look at his controversial rise to power, why he hated Mordecai, and the seemingly inevitable genocide of the Jewish people. Hi, my name is David Cipriano. I'm a youth pastor and my goal is to teach the Bible to as many people as possible. Today's study of Haman starts in Esther chapter 3. The Bible says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not nor did him reverence. Have you ever been through something that seemed like nothing at the time, but ended up being a big deal later? I remember thinking that way about the coronavirus the first time I ever heard about it. I remember hearing about it all the time, but thinking that it wasn't really that big of a deal. At first, I thought that it wasn't really much more than a flu. And while you definitely don't want to get it, I'd never thought that it would become what it became. Many of us believe that COVID wouldn't be a big deal when we first heard about it, but soon it would end up flipping the world upside down. It caught us all by surprise. Sometimes what seems as a minor issue today will end up becoming a major catastrophe in the future. And in Esther chapter 3, we see a major catastrophe because all of the Jews in Persia are given a death sentence by a man named Haman. This was for both young and old, little children and women. This was for every Jew in the kingdom. But did you know that this story really starts out hundreds of years before in 1 Samuel in a seemingly unrelated event. It was something that didn't seem like a big deal in the moment, but then it ended up blowing up later. You see, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, it says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. In battle, God had commanded King Saul of Israel to wipe out the Amalekites, and yet Saul disobeys God. It says, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag. You see, God had told Saul to do one thing, but he didn't do it. Saul spared a king named Agag when he was supposed to kill him, and at first, it might have seemed like Saul's disobedience wasn't really a big deal. Saul was mostly obedient. He did most of the job, but partial obedience with God is disobedience. And this was an event that led to Saul losing the throne. And it seemed like Saul losing his kingship was the height of his punishment. But now we see that hundreds of years later in the story of Esther, a man is promoted in the Persian empire and he becomes a very powerful man in the world's most powerful nation. And notice here how the Bible describes him. It says, after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Haman was a descendant from King Agag, the Amalekite, the man who Saul was commanded to kill. Because Saul didn't do it and he disobeyed God, one person from this group would end up nearly destroying the Jewish people. You see, the story of Haman reminds us that one act of disobedience today can lead to major consequences later on. And it also reminds us of this. The Jews are the most 
most hated people group in the history of the world. Jews have been expelled from many different countries. Millions of them were killed in the Holocaust, and yet there's people who day who call this fake. We see the atrocities committed by Hamas and the war crimes that they've committed against Israel. Anti-Semitism and hate crimes against Jewish people are on the rise. And for thousands and thousands of years, people from all over the world have been prejudiced and hateful toward the people of God. And one of the Jews' biggest enemies in all of history was a man named Haman. And to this day, the Jews still haven't forgotten about him. And it's still a tradition that each year on the Feast of Purim, the Jews will do a public reading of Esther in the synagogue. And whenever the reader mentions Haman's name, the people go crazy. When the reader reads Haman, people will start to boo, they'll stomp their feet, they'll blow whistles, they'll bang on the tables. At some of these events, they will even make a puppet of Haman and they'll punch him and hang him. The Jewish people still hate Haman to this day because Haman was the Jews' enemy. And to the Jewish people, Haman personifies everybody who's tried to exterminate these people. Haman was a wicked man who tried to kill all the Jews. And as we look into this evil villain, we're going to see four aspects of his story. Number one, we see Haman's promotion. Reading that first verse again, it says, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So about four years have passed since Mordecai saved the king's life. And the verse starts out by saying, after these things. In other words, after all this time, Haman was promoted. And this wasn't just a small promotion. It says that he was above all the princes that were with him. Haman was an incredibly powerful man in the world's most powerful country. Haman has power, he has wealth, he has influence, he has fame. And maybe to the reader, that seems kind of messed up because Mordecai saved the king's life years ago and he still hasn't been thanked, he hasn't been rewarded, he hasn't been honored, and yet wicked Haman was promoted to great power. We often see the world and think life's not fair. This isn't right. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Why does God let good things happen to bad people? And sometimes we might question to ourselves, does God even know what he's doing? And sometimes it might feel like God's missing. And we might think that when reading the book of Esther sometimes, because God isn't mentioned a single time. The name of the Lord is never found, and it might seem like God's missing. And yet looking back through the story, we see the evidence of God everywhere. So many times where God was working out his plan, where everything seemed wrong, but God was using these details to work out his story. And we see that here with Haman, because this evil wicked man was promoted, and maybe it doesn't seem right or fair, but God was still working out his plan. God wasn't absent. Number one, we see the promotion of Haman, and number two, we see the pride of Haman. Verse two says, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Haman's pride is revealed when Mordecai refuses to bow. It says that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. He did not 
comply with the king's orders. And it seemed like before, Mordecai had sometimes just done what was easy and gone with the flow. He was a Jew living in Persia, even though the Jews weren't supposed to still be living there anymore. He had hid his Jewish identity, and he had told Esther to do the same. But from what it seems, there's been a change in his life, because now he's open about being a Jew. Now he's taking a stand. He's not bowing to people. He's defying the law when man's law conflicts with God's law. There's some times when the law tells us to do something that goes against the Bible, because sometimes God's law and the government's laws contradict. And when those times occur, we ought to obey God's law instead. And I want to be very clear that unless a law causes us to disobey God, we should always obey the law. Romans 13 says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. The Bible is very clear that we should obey the laws of the government. And in Mark 12:17, it says, Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. God wants for us to be compliant, law-abiding citizens, but when the government's law conflicts with God's law, God's law ought to take priority. That's the only time when we shouldn't follow the law. And we find some biblical examples of this, where people disobeyed the government's law in order to obey God's law. For example, Daniel never stopped praying to God even when he would get sent to the lion's den because of it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Moses' mother refused to have her baby boy put to death. Joab refused to number the people even though King David told him to do so. The Apostle Paul refused to quit preaching the gospel. And here we see that Mordecai is refusing to bow to Haman. This goes along with the principle that Peter talks about in Acts chapter 5 where he says, we ought to obey God rather than men. Legality doesn't determine morality. Just because some something is legal doesn't mean that it's right. And just because something is right doesn't mean that it will always be legal. Now, these things don't always conflict, and we often are able to obey both God and the law at the same time. But when these things conflict, Christians ought to choose God's law over man's law. And we see that happening here because Mordecai refuses to bow. And when Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman, Haman becomes very angry. Verse 5 says, and when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. We see Haman's pride being highlighted here. And you'll find that many sins are a result of pride. Pride makes people angry. It makes people selfish. Pride is sometimes the reason that we lie and become bitter. Pride is a reason for racism. Pride is a root sin that many other sins come out of. And here, when Mordecai refuses to bow, Haman's pride is hurt. Because it wasn't enough for him to have 99% of the people bowing, he had to have 100%. Because he was so proud and so arrogant and so discontent that it made him make a big deal out of nothing. Now, you should expect a grown man with that much power and authority to be mature. And yet, Haman was a lot like King Ahasuerus. And the fact that these men each had a lot of power politically, and they had power over others, but they have no power over over themselves. They have a lot of control, but no self-control. And this is a reminder to us that your problems and your issues
issues aren't just going to work themselves out. Sometimes we think that we'll just grow out of it, we'll just stop the habit eventually, but that's really not true. Maybe you struggle with your temper, or with lust, or with self-control, or with laziness, or with bitterness. You're going to keep struggling until you make some real intentional changes. If you're thinking to yourself that it's just going to work out, then you will not get better. In fact, it'll only get worse as habits become more ingrained in you. Haman has reached the peak of his power, and it might seem like he's living the dream, and yet he never grows out of his bad character. He never grows beyond his immaturities. We see here that Haman makes a big deal out of nothing. He has a lot of political control, but no self-control, because when Mordecai refuses to bow, Haman becomes full of wrath, because Haman was a prideful man. So we see Haman's promotion, his pride, and third, we see his plan. Haman comes up with a revenge plan, because in his eyes, Mordecai has greatly wronged him, so Haman comes up with this scheme to get back at him, and the plan starts out with one thing, but then it develops into something so much greater. And we see this in verse 6. It says, And he thought scorned to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Haman has a plan, and this plan is to kill Mordecai, and that's pretty extreme. Killing a man just for not bowing to him. Haman was a man who abused his power. He makes a big deal out of a little thing, and he uses his power to seek revenge. But then Haman realizes that Mordecai was a Jew, and Haman would have been very familiar with the history here, because the Jews back in Saul's day nearly wiped out all of his ancestors, and there likely would have been a lot of contention, a lot of prejudice, a lot of racism. Haman has a plan to kill Mordecai, but once he realizes that Mordecai is a Jew, now his plan becomes bigger. Now his plan is to kill all the Jews. It says that he sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. You see, Haman was angry with one person, so he takes it out on an entire people group. He was judging everybody because of just one person. Let me remind you here, don't judge everybody because of what a few outliers do. Sometimes people will come to the conclusion that all police are bad because a few of them are abusive. Some people think that pastors are all corrupt and all evil because they hear a few stories on the news. Some people will take it out on all gun owners every time that they hear about a shooting. And I am in no way excusing the wrongs of some people or trying to make excuses for them. But sometimes we'll start to make judgments about everybody or about entire groups because of what just a few outliers do. And this isn't right. We shouldn't be doing this. And Haman does this to the extreme. He's trying to kill an entire group of people all because of one person. So Haman casts lots to determine when they'll kill the Jews and they're going to do it in the 12th month. So he goes to the king and tells lies about the Jewish people. Verse 8 says, And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people, 
neither keep they the king's laws, therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. Notice here how Haman uses deceptive language. He doesn't specifically call out the Jewish people, he rather refers to them as a certain people scattered abroad, and he tells the king that these people are good for nothing. He tells them that they're not compliant, that they're revolting against the king, that they're unprofitable for the king. Haman is building up the case that his genocide plan will be more convincing, and in the next verse he says, if it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. You see, Haman so badly wants to kill the Jews that he offers 10,000 talents of silver. Now to us modern readers, 10,000 talents of silver might not mean very much, but according to historians, the annual revenue of the Persian Empire was 15,000 talents of silver. So we see here that 10,000 talents of silver is an incredibly large amount of money. And this crazy amount was Haman's bribe to the king. It was an offer that the king felt like he couldn't say no to. And especially after the failed war in Greece between chapters 1 and 2, he knew that they needed the money. You see, Haman has a plan. This plan is to wipe out God's people. So we see Haman's promotion, his pride, his plan, and then finally we see his power. The Bible continues in verse 10 where it says, And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants, and to the governors that were over every province, and to the rulers of every people of every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. Haman has successfully bribed the king. The king was a bad decision maker, and he accepts this bribe and just lets Haman do whatever he wants. We see that Haman had the king's support, and as we talked about earlier, legality doesn't determine morality. Just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's right. In America, things like abortion and same-sex marriage and pornography are all legal things to do, but they're not right, and your ethics shouldn't be based on whether something is legal. Man's law doesn't determine God's law, and Haman's genocide of the Jews proves that because it was legal, but that never meant that it was right. And on the flip side of this, just because something is right doesn't mean that it's legal. It is not legal in every country to have a church service, or to read the Bible, or to share the gospel, or to affirm the biblical worldview. Sometimes doing the right thing isn't legal, because legality doesn't determine morality. Man's law and God's law don't always mix. And when Haman has this plan to kill the Jewish people, he has the king's support. It was legal, but it wasn't right. So the Jews had a death date. It says, And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people that they should be ready against that day. The post went out, being hastened by the king's 
commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. So the Jews had been given this death date, and they would all be systemically killed on the 13th day of the 12th month. And at the end of the third chapter, it looks like it's going to be over for God's people. Things were looking pretty dark, pretty hopeless. This genocide seemed inevitable. And how could anything save them now? Esther is the book where God's name is never found. And for the Jews, it felt like God was missing. They were probably thinking to themselves, where's God? Why isn't God doing something about this? And we may often feel the same way in our own lives, where we don't clearly see God, where we think to ourselves, God, where are you? God, are you there? God, are you still paying attention to my situation? And what we find in our own lives and what we find in the story of Esther is that God works behind the scenes in ways that we can't see yet. Let me remind you that God hasn't forgotten about you. God is not neglecting you. God is going to be there right on time. And as bad as things look in Esther chapter 3, God is going to save his people. God's going to work out his sovereign plan. And just because God seems silent, it doesn't mean that he's absent, because even when life seems hopeless, God's people always have hope. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Following Jesus podcast. Tune in next Monday as Mordecai goes to Queen Esther, and he challenges her to step up and reverse Haman's decree, and he gives her this famous word for such a time as this. Thanks for listening, and subscribe for more biblical teaching.